Hello, and welcome to the XR Stories podcast, where extended reality and storytelling meet. In this series, you'll meet creative producer John Rose Adams. John will be talking to the creators and innovators behind immersive storytelling projects supported by XR Stories. You're going to hear about all sorts of interactive storytelling genres, from theatre to gaming to virtual reality escape rooms, and so much more. This time, Emma from Cooperative Innovations talks to John about Storyland and the potential opportunities that VR can offer families. So, it's time to embrace your inner child, put on your thinking caps, and make sure you are ready for some creative thinking, as what happens in this story is completely up to you. Well, hello, Emma Cooper. Hello, John Rose Adams. I thought we should start off by letting you introduce yourself, your role at Cooperative Innovations, and a little bit about your background. My name is Emma Cooper, and I am a business development consultant at Cooperative Innovations. My background is in interactive media, so I've been working in interactive media for 20 years. I really care about interaction and user agency and how much fun users have interacting with whatever it is that they're doing. What's Cooperative Innovations here to do? It was set up by Brian and Simon in 2016, we're four or five years old, to take advantage of the social nature of immersive technologies. We are mainly interested in bringing people together online, bringing people together in immersive spaces. Okay, well, let's talk about Storyland then. So Storyland is an R&D project that XR Stories were lucky to be involved in with you guys. What's the idea for Storyland? Where does it come from? A big chunk of the work that I've produced in my life has been aimed directly at children as an audience. With immersive media, because of the hardware and some of the constraints, there's not been a lot of exploration in how this works for children. So that was one key interest for me was just, let's do something in this space with children. We've spent the last, it's actually, it's been over a year now, hasn't it? Working with Becky Parry and Anish at University of Sheffield and a group of families. The families have kind of become as a whole, (laughs) they've come as a whole package into the research. So we've talked to them at length about their experience of games and media in general and what they like and what they don't like about existing platforms such as Minecraft. What we spend a lot of time doing is talking to the families about that and introducing them to VR. I think it was something like 13, 14 families got VR headsets sent to them and they went on this exploration of what is VR and what does it mean to them. And we're right in, we're just in the final stages of testing our first alpha with those families, which is really exciting and a bit daunting. That's really exciting. Okay, so I've I had a little play with the alpha if you can describe it to our listeners so you enter vr and boot up storyland and what's in front of me what's in front of you is a living room a cartoon cartoonified family living room and then you get a voiceover and it's our wonderful community manager kevin (laughs) 
<laughs> being a narrator and he's explaining to you what we're going to do. Oh, hello. Welcome to Storyland. <clears throat> Sorry. We're going to make a story together. Our story will have three acts. To give you a head start, we've already made the first act for you. One of the things that we wanted to explore with this app was narrative structure and children's understanding of narrative structure. We had a look at kind of what is taught in narrative structure, at what age and what stage. And we came to the conclusion that if we went with a fixed narrative structure and then let the children kind of create within that structure, it would be best. So you see act one. Act one is a story setup and the story setup is fixed. We have created that because we needed to create some some creative constraints for the children. And that setup is an octopus appears in your living room. Originally, in the in the design document, it was going to be a kraken <laughs> appearing from a crack in the floor because I like nice. that as a cre creative conceit. After lots of talking backwards and forwards, we decided that that might be terrifying. Um, <laughs> and as it turns out, the octopus is quite terrifying. So octopus arrives into the living room and that's it. You're ready for act two and you have some characters to choose from and some props to work with and you have the ability to record a performance for act two. And then in act three, you're encouraged to do the same again but create a conclusion and a reason for the octopus to go away. We've left it really open in many ways for lot for lots of different reasons. One, one is we want to see what happens. We want to see what happens when children are kind of left with very little instruction. I'm a great believer in children are incredibly media savvy and they know what they're doing. They, you know, they play games all the time. They're on screens all the time. They, they know a lot more than they let on often. So we've left the structure very open. The octopus is quite interactive. There are some props. If you throw a basketball at the octopus, the octopus will catch the basketball and bounce it. If you throw one of the hoops, he'll catch it and then throw it away. There's a laser pointer. If you point the laser pointer at it, you can get it to a point in the middle of its face where it goes cross-eyed. It doesn't like it. If you wave to the octopus, the octopus waves back. And none of this is explicit in the instructions or in any of the information that the children have got. Our hope is that they will discover this and then play with it and make a story out of it. That's brilliant. So I, I had a go. So I'm assuming at some point somebody's got the recording of me um, doing that. Hey, man. Okay, let's try. The ball. Did you catch this? Well, he's not happy with that. I wasn't scared by the octopus. Good, I'm glad. I do get, and I get scared easily, so that's okay. And it was fun. What what I realised in 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 any environment like that, and it, obviously, I I would assume it's even more of a an acute feeling for a younger audience member or somebody that's never been in VR before, is that you've got a number of kind of sensory inputs and everything's all around you and. The choice of what to do, I became self-conscious, interestingly, and I wasn't too sure 
what was what was the most effective use of my time and and i turned into an adult going well maybe i won't pick up the ball first maybe they want me to pick up the ball first and all of that stuff and (laughs) once i once i just started talking to myself and enjoying kind of what i was doing it was wonderful the other point i think that i felt is that and and i often refer to this within vr and i know emma you and i have spoke about this before is how much of it's theater yeah Uh, and and the tropes of theater and how a period of time plays out through story. So there's so much there to kind of bring into the VR world and all of that learning. So creating the, sto- the story arc and that, it's, it's a fine art. It's yeah. not a, a learn-by-numbers type ability. So all of your learning through the R&D, it's, it's hard fought because it's not straightforward at all. Can we explore a little bit the academic collaboration that you have with the University of Sheffield? So you mentioned the researchers that are involved in the project. Let's start with who they are and what their specialist areas are. And then I guess what the nature of the partnership was on this project. So our core partner is Becky Parry. And I've known Becky for a long time through working in children's media. So and we're both based in Sheffield. She is a lecturer or a researcher in digital literacies. So being able to work with her on this project has been super awesome and we've had such wonderful conversations. Becky's been really good at formatting questions and talking to the children and the families about their experiences. So she has interpreted what the children have been saying and helping us to understand much better what we're trying to achieve. They can even catch balls and bounce them. I'll show you. Go on, Fred. Whoa, that's scary. Is it fair to say that there hasn't been a great deal of research into VR and younger audiences to date? Yeah, absolutely. There, There isn't a huge amount that has been done. I, I suspect because there isn't a market for it at the moment and because of the technical restrictions. So the headsets aren't designed for children. I think there is a natural barrier, sort of like age-wise, around what's acceptable. And as a result, there hasn't been a lot of research done. And also, we're still a very relatively young industry. With the tech in mind, is the assumption for you and for cooperative innovations that the the clunkiness and the size of headsets and things that's something that will sort of evaporate and as we go forward as they become lighter and smaller and more powerful and, and all of that yeah as soon as something becomes smaller it becomes easier to manufacture we're at a really interesting tipping point where it's very hard to get all the electronics that you need into a small device but they're working on it because they recognise that that's a barrier. And so doing this research now enables us, I suppose, to get a better understanding within the constraints of technology and, and, and its suitability for young people physiologically. But we get begin our set of understandings and develop that quicker over time. So I think timing-wise, it's really important. And then with the research as well, you know, you, you've talked a little bit about how you're exploring what level of um, play and interaction a child will bring to this, this kind of experience. And, I, and I, it struck me that, you know, one of your key assumptions, and I think it's I think you're right, is that children absorb stories readily 
into their own play and creativities because they're just immersed in stories all the time. You know, they read more books than us. They watch better telly than us, largely. You know, oh, they have more time. They're, they're constantly in a state of kind of moving between kind of imagined and real world and, and actually probably not seeing much difference between the two things. So did that did that transpose into the virtual world? Are you beginning to see evidence that the children are just like, yep, yeah, I get it, I'm here, I'm playing? I think it's still too early to tell. Although what what me and Becky realised the other day is the families have had the headsets for a year now. <laughs> Just through the pandemic and timing and, and all the different constraints that we've had as a result of that. They've had that headset in their living rooms for a year and that was never an intended part of the research. But actually we have we have some really interesting data on the longevity of this new technology in family homes, which is kind of a minefield of information that's really juicy and wonderful. And a lot of the families, the the headsets have to come back soon. And a lot of the families are dreading giving them back, which is really interesting because I think as a professional who's interested in the market, I want to see that there's an interest to buy the hardware because the hardware... it doesn't work without the hardware and that there's a longevity so you know i'm going to go back and play on this i'm going to continue to have a relationship with this thing and i think we can see evidence of that which is really exciting because that gives us information that we can go to investors and to brand owners and say look 10 families had some headsets in their house for a year and this is what we found out and that's quite valuable and I'm very excited. Hugely. And and even in the last week, Emma, I've heard two other conversations which would corroborate that, which is that the assumption from a lot of quarters around VR, based on kind of real data, but that's probably two, three years old now, is that it was um, blokes who, for the listeners, probably look a lot like me, playing VR games, which are probably involved, you know, running around shooting a lot of things. And actually, the family side of a VR headset is actually un- underexplored but is part of that so yes only one person can wear it at a time but but families share it amongst themselves and they and here, here you go granny it's your go now and I think that's marvelous because that totally goes against these prevailing assumptions that they're, they're only for a certain kind of part of the market and that's really interesting so on the cooperative side and obviously thinking about what you guys know as cooperative innovations that the there's VR's strongest take up probably certainly in terms of investment is in enterprise that is very much a headset for work purposes whether you're designing something in 3D together with a team that are halfway around the world or you know modeling fixing an, an oil rig at sea without any risk of falling in the water because you're not really there is there a convergence there? So we all see VR in various walks of life, be it in the home, as entertainment, or at work, as a work device. And is the sweet spot when it's everywhere, I guess, and then we all just kind of go, oh, it's useful. Brilliant. Oftentimes new technologies are a, a solution looking for a problem. Like a lot of the time we, we come up with these amazing toys and then we go, right, what? How I think QR codes are the pièce de résistance of that. You know, when they first started being used, people were like what? Why? Like I can read a URL. What? Why don't need that? And now this year, QR codes are so handy and they've become so ubiquitous because of it. I think that once we see more 
need in the market, then we'll see bigger growth. And part of our hope as an organisation is, Simon often says, people are a multiplier for technology. The more people that you need to use your thing, the more they will tell everybody else about it, the more they will share it. And they'll go, look at this thing, it's amazing. It's made my, it's made this part of my life easier. I think during lockdown, we used our headsets as a social tool, as a team. We get such a different experience being together in VR than we do over Zoom. Although Zoom is quicker and easier. And I think that a lot of people are starting to buy headsets for their staff, just for the social aspect, just for the the sheer joy of, you know, running around a fake forest and doing fake paintballing, which you can do in VR chat, by the way, it's very good. So thoughts on where next for Storyland? Where do you see it progressing to? So obviously this this is early stage R&D. You've been exploring the most important early bits. So what really is the story functionality that younger audiences are looking for? What works? What resonates? What do we fill the world with? But it can go any number of directions from here. So what what's your plan or what what, what feels like it might be the next steps? I think the next steps are to take take the results of the research and publish that and see what kind of interest we get. I'd like to talk to brand owners about it. I'd like to talk to uh, organisations that have stories. So publishers, television studios and those kinds of people and talk to them about what they've thought about VR and their audience and help them to maybe explore this as a tool for them to use. I think that the other thing that we could do with it is put it out into the world. So there are different routes that we can get it to market. So we can put it out into the world as a a free-to-play trial and get a significant number of people playing it and seeing what happens. The other thing that we're thinking about, we've got a concurrent product that we're working on called Curators, which is kind of like tourism, a cultural tourism tool. One of the things that we're wondering about with curators is who's the audience for that. We know that grown-ups are interested in museums and we also know that families are really interested in museums. So what we're thinking about is what learnings we can take from this project to apply to that project and possibly melding the two. So if you're running around the British Museum in virtual reality, could you make a story to share with your class afterwards? about what you've learned so could you make a story about the mummies it's really hard because like the parent in me is i want to i want to show learning (laughs) like this activity was valuable but actually are the kids interested in that would they do it so i think that's the next sort of step for that project that sounds very fruitful actually and i was thinking as you were saying that you know museums and cultural partners they invest so much time in bringing the content of the muse- of their museum to life for younger audiences, which often involves play, story creation, mediated activities of various sorts, too often, unfortunately, in a separate room from the museum where they're sort of crashed over into the corner. But that potential for storytelling in museum settings, virtual or otherwise, is, is huge. So, I think the thing, the thing for us with curators is... We've created a space that is a museum, but it doesn't have the same rules. And you can touch the things and you can play with them. So it unlocks this whole other side to the experience, which is exciting. Really exciting. Oh, I love that.
I'm going to widen the conversation to immersive and interactive scene, storytelling scene in particular, because that's what we love most. Are there any sort of really kind of big challenges impacting getting more people engaged and excited about interactive and immersive storytelling? Discovery is the biggest hurdle. I think it's it's making it's helping people to to think about what kind of entertainment they want. So for the longest time, we've talked about lean back and and lean forward experiences. A lean back experiences. You tell me a story. I'm really interested in lean forward experiences. If I was interested in lean back, I think I'd work in telly. I want to make lean forward experiences where I get to explore that story. But getting people to kind of go, do you know what? To this evening, I'd like to be, I'd like to be part of the story. And I think that we're not quite there yet. That's a really good point about discoverability because it strikes me that that, that ability for content to come to us in the forms that we like is what we might be missing. You know, Oculus Home environment can offer us everything uh, and it can select stuff for us based on our preferences, of course, but it does offer everything. Whereas if I was only interested in, I don't know, let's pick a 360 films of extreme sports it's not actually my preference but a home for me and a community around that would make me feel um, closer to the technology I think so yeah d- discoverability must be one of those kind of key elements and I suppose that will come with as con- the types of content whether they're games films other forms of interactive even in just VR as a space the more we get of it the more we're going to have to learn how to offer the content to our personal preferences certain members of the market we're getting into a bit of a a monopoly or possibly a duopoly and that's not good for content growth because getting onto those marketplaces is challenging and then even when you're onto those marketplaces you are very much at the at the whims of the content market owners and Whilst ever you're in a position where one singular or two singular organisations hold the keys to that access, it's very difficult as a content maker. So we're going to go through a big pattern, as we did with the internet, where we go through people making content that never gets seen. And then two or three years later, people point back and go, oh my God, did you see that? It's amazing. And there's, there's some poor starving content maker going, why? <laughs> why? For you, Emma, what's the best immersive and interactive experience, let's say in the last year, that you've seen? I really like Cubism, which is a 3D puzzle game um, where you are reassembling different 3D shapes in a glass box. And it's very slow and thinky and it's awesome. Um, I really, really appreciate it. I'll check it out. That's brilliant. And then Cooperative Innovations is probably one of the busiest little companies I know. Are there any other projects you can share with us? Uh, You've mentioned Curators already. Is there any other projects we can see from you guys soon? We put out Space Team VR a year ago, last week. So we had a, a, we're currently having a birthday celebration on Space Team VR. And what we've done as a complimentary piece to that is we've made a, a flatty. Uh, 
<laughs> a, a version of the game that you can play on your computer, so through a 2D screen. We recognise that the hardware isn't as ubiquitous as we'd like it to be, and actually, as a multiplayer game, it's better when there's more people playing. We also worked on a collaboration with Sony and the popular music artist Tate McRae. We made a video for her song, You Break Me First, that's specifically designed to work in Sony's spatial reality display. It's about the size of a shoebox and it takes a read of where your face is and then shows you a different view of the video depending on where your head is, which is superb and magic. But it was creatively really interesting project to get involved with because we recreated Tate in 3D and she did a specific dance routine and we recreated it. So our animators had an amazing time trying to recreate her dance moves, specifically because she's a classically trained ballet dancer who can do ridiculous, amazing things with her body. She can get her leg like up to her head, which meant that the animators were really challenged to get the forms to work in 3D and for it to look realistic. And the, the finished product is absolutely amazing. So yeah, that was super exciting project to work on. Emma, thank you so much for sharing all of that about your project, Storyland. Wish you every success. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the XR Stories podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. And don't forget to rate and review to help more people find us. You can find more information on our projects by heading to our website, xrstories.co.uk, or you can find us on Twitter at xr underscore stories. XR Stories supports research and development in cutting-edge digital technologies in the Yorkshire and Humber region. We have a programme of funding, research collaboration and connection to champion a new future in storytelling. XR Stories is supported and funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, the European Regional Development Fund, the University of York, the British Film Institute and Screen Yorkshire.